Today on The Black Goat, we discuss computational reproducibility, focusing on a dramatic recent report about replicating and verifying a major finding in cognitive neuroscience, and a letter about applying for a job when you think you're underqualified. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vazir. I'm actually recording in a different room today because they're doing road construction outside my house and it was making noise. But Samin, your side of the recording is quiet for a much (laughs) different and I think more exciting reason, which is uh, you're very much anticipating the soon-to-be arrival of Hugo. Yes, Hugo's journey is continuing, although he won't arrive with me anytime soon because Melbourne is in lockdown and all animals have to fly through Melbourne. So he's he was in Davis for a few months with my house sitter who was amazing and stayed with him through the months that I ended up staying in Sydney. Then he moved to my mom's about a month ago and then on Friday he's getting picked up and then on Monday he flies, lands on Wednesday of next week. Then he spends 10 days in quarantine in Melbourne and then Fiona will pick him up when he gets out of quarantine and he'll live with Fiona until I can get to Melbourne. So it'll be a long journey. Is this quarantine a COVID quarantine or a regular no. quarantine? Regular okay. quarantine. So it's only 10 days, not as bad as human quarantine. Okay. What do they do? What does he do for 10 days? Like, you can you go visit him? You can't go visit him. I don't know if pre-COVID, I heard you could go visit them before, but I don't know if that's a COVID regulation that you can't go visit them now. But yeah, you can't. No, I think it's just like being in a shelter for 10 days. Hopefully they, you know, they walk the dogs, I assume, at least once or twice a day and maybe play with them a bit. I don't know. Um, yeah, the, the quarantine's not going to be fun, but I think the flight will be by far the worst. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but he'll have a lot of attention and love when he gets to Fiona's house. So that'll be good. Mm-hmm. Has he yeah. met Fiona before? He has met Fiona before. She came to okay. my mom's house in Palo Alto once when he okay. was there. Okay, so he'll probably go nuts when he smells a familiar person. Yeah, Florida. although I think he likes anybody and he'll be very <laughs> by the kids who will, I'm sure, lavish tons of attention on him. Yeah. And then all the exciting new treats in Australia. I was at the store. There's <laughs> kangaroo tail discs. There's kangaroo oh, kneecaps. Oh, God. <laughs> There's also whole kangaroo tails. There's shark cartilage. And then, of course, like, yeah, lots of other stuff. But it's amazing. The I, I saw you tweeted about that. I thought you were joking about the kangaroo uh, no. knuckles. Yes, <laughs> no. I should have taken a picture. So what, what is the, what do people do with kangaroo such that they have knuckles and tails left over to give to I dogs? I think humans eat kangaroo meat here. Okay. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it like, I mean, I'm sure, like, I know you can get any kind of meat if you look hard enough but is it like a common thing like if you just go to a restaurant are they like hey have a kangaroo burger i haven't seen kangaroo meat at restaurants yet i don't think or maybe if i have you know it was a long time ago but i don't think it's that uncommon i know kangaroo meat is like there's too many kangaroos or i mean i won't get into the ethics of when it's okay to eat meat but they're not an endangered or even whatever the next category up from that is species okay do you think Hugo will enjoy kangaroo knuckles? Did you say knuckles and discs? Kneecaps. And kneecaps. Kneecaps and tails. 
Um, There's something so aggressive sounding about kneecaps. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I don't know why. That's, that's what mobsters take yeah, out that's when, why. when you're behind yeah, on your yeah. debts. Right. That's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't buy any of those for him. I feel like, I don't know if I want to like introduce him and then what if that's all he ever wants to eat is like, no, I'm holding out for the kangaroo. And then your house is like covered in half <laughs> kneecaps. <laughs> I mean, the things we, we give our dogs in the U.S. are like, you know, they're like hooves and uh, they're not mm-hmm. less gross. We're just used to it. That's true. Yeah. Just give them the gross parts of the, the gross chewy parts is the, you don't give them the gross squishy parts. I guess you put that in their food, but then the gross chewy parts you give to them as toys. Yeah. Can you tell if he misses you? Like, are there signs as he's, or is, I mean, you said he, he's pretty affable, right? So yeah, I think he's pretty happy. I mean, I think he's gotten more attention most of the time that I've been away than he would have if it was just me and him. So, like, my mom has several roommates, and they give him lots of attention. And so I'm, yeah, maybe this is just rationalization, but I don't feel too guilty. I think he's pretty happy. I feel guilty about the move. I think being, like, he has to fly San Francisco to Auckland, New Zealand, then spend four hours in Auckland, then fly to Melbourne and be in quarantine. Like, all of that is going to suck. Although I read about a dog that had an even longer journey, like, it started in, in Key West and was supposed to end up in Sydney, but then the Melbourne to Sydney flight was, anyway, it was, like, a million-mile journey. And then an elephant that was being moved from Argentina to Brazil. There's a really interesting story about what it's like to move an elephant during the pandemic. Eddie wow. Young, story you didn't write it so maybe this is a stupid question but like why is it unpleasant for a a dog to be on a long flight uh so they can't move i mean they're in a crate for like the flight from san francisco to auckland is i'm guessing like 14 15 hours so they can't do their business they have to pee in their own crate which is dogs don't like to pee where they sleep yeah that's like move around Mm -hmm. and then it's like loud they're in cargo so I imagine that, you know, it's scary. They have no idea what's going on. So he'll mm-hmm. be on a bit of sedatives so that'll help a bit. But, and you don't know when it ends. You don't know like why it's happening. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I remember, I don't, this is one of those like stylized stories that I heard secondhand. So it's probably not entirely historically accurate, but like the story that I heard, which I, of course, tell to my intro to psych class because I'm afraid to look it up and find out it's not as fun. But is that like Hans Selye, the way he started studying stress was that he was studying like the digestive system in like mice or rats or something. And, uh, but they were all getting ulcers and he realized that it was because like once a day he had to go and pick them up and like stick a needle into their abdomens to like, I don't know, draw out their gastric juices or something. I just, I always think of like, you know, just imagine like you're going about your business and your life, but once a day a giant hand reaches down from the sky, sticks a needle in you and then puts you back. And it's like, yeah, that would be fucking stressful. You know, it's just like, you know, every day, like this just giant hand is going to come out and you have no idea why or what it's doing. Um, and so anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's probably for Hugo, like he'll, it's good that he'll be a little sedated, but yeah, that's probably like, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a very, uh, happy arrival at the end. So that will make it yeah. worth it for him. And luckily he's like, 
I mean, he used to sleep in a crate at night when I first got him and he would just like, he would get in his crate happily at like 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. and at like 8 a.m. he'd still be lying there. I'd open the door and he'd be like, yeah, I'm good. So at least I know he can last 12 hours and like be okay. But obviously it's different when it's an unfamiliar loud place that's flying in the sky. But Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, will, I will look forward to seeing him on our podcast recording yeah, session once again. Someday. Someday soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, should we go on and do our letter of the week? Yeah, let's do our letter. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, dear Alexa, Samin, and Sanjay, I'm currently a postdoc, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on whether you think it's a good idea, a bad idea, or perhaps a neutral idea to apply for a tenure-track position that is a perfect fit for your research interests, but you are not qualified for it. A job posting went up, and I believe it is a great fit for what I do. My first instinct is to apply, but a friend of mine who is more advanced in their career warned me that it may not look good to apply when you're not ready in terms of publication counts, etc. From a hiring committee standpoint, will it really harm my chances in the future if I applied when not ready? Best wishes, anonymous. Um, So my first reaction to this letter was, the letter writer writes that um, they're not qualified for this job, but I think that's generally um, sort of like a subjective call. And I feel like it's often hard to know whether you're qualified for a job or not. Um, so for, for me, this seems relatively uncomplicated and maybe you guys can add more nuance. I Maybe there's some really extreme position where like you don't have a PhD or something and you're applying for a job that requires a PhD where, yeah, it's not worth it and you could like sort of look silly doing it. Um, but I think in, a, in an instance where you're thinking, maybe I don't have enough publications for this job or something like that, um, I think that you should apply um, because I don't think that, I think it's hard to guess what employers are looking for, what universities are looking for. Um, and if you assume that they're not looking for you, then you just sort of like shoot yourself in the foot from the start. Um, so I think it's a hard thing to estimate. And I think uh you might as well try try your luck um yeah at the Did very I least tell you i guys... think that the reason not to apply is not because the hiring committee is going to hold it against you in the future if you apply yeah. for another job there like i think there might be other reasons like time invested and things like that but that reason mm-hmm. i would even if you're it's a completely ridiculous fit and you're not qualified that that cost is almost zero almost zero did I ever tell you guys the story that when I was a senior in college, I applied for a provost job? <laughs> <laughs> no. Just you, you talking about being underqualified. So it was like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, uh, my college was hiring for a provost. And so mostly I just wanted a rejection letter that I could like put up on the wall. And so I, I sent in a resume and a cover letter. Um, cheekily explaining how even though I wasn't a conventional candidate I brought all this like perspective that that they normally didn't have and uh I'd never even got a reply I never even got an acknowledgement but now if you ever apply for a job at that Mm -hmm. university they're gonna they're they're just they're gonna be like fuck you Sanjay they're gonna look at the wall and be like yep he's on the He's on the yeah, well, yeah, right. it's funny you say a wall because I, 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 there was a guy down the hall in my dorm. This is like senior year of college, so everyone's applying for jobs. And there was a guy down the hall who just couldn't get a job. And so he started putting all his rejection letters up on the wall. And he had like 30 of them or something. And that was kind of what gave me the idea. I was like, oh, it would be funny to like frame this. 
Um, anyway, so that's not particularly helpful to our letter writer. Um, yeah, I, I mean, but actually, qualified. one thing that is useful to know is that people apply for things that they don't expect to get and they know it's kind of almost a joke all the time and that includes yeah. grants too so that's one thing i didn't know but being on a grant panel there are people mailing in applications because they get credit with their university just for applying and it's like a half-assed application that they don't care i mean obviously they care that they don't have a chance to get it but even if they know that they have no chance of getting it they're going to apply anyway mm -hmm. and so you're not going to stand out by being like, yeah i think that is something to like being on search committees um, I feel like the people who are like, maybe I don't quite have enough publications are not the people who stand out. That's like the majority of the applicants way, yeah. for most jobs. Um, so yeah, nobody, nobody's going to like look at your CV because you, you know, have fewer publications than you think you'll need and think, wow, this person was insane for applying. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So I'm, I'm almost, I, you know, it's interesting because I, I, whenever, when this has come up in the past, I'm pretty much always of the like, go for it school, like setting aside, which, you know, we should talk about like the costs of getting your application ready and asking people to like, write letters, all that. But in terms of what the letter writer is focusing on here, I'm always of the go for it variety. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm, and because we got a letter about it, I'm trying to sort of think of, is there a case not to, and I, I, I think like, I agree with, I think you're making, both of you are making a really good point, which is that if you're like a reasonable person and you're even thinking I might, then probably you're not going to be at the bottom of the list <laughs> because some people who really shouldn't uh, um, and, ha and lack self-awareness or whatever, or, you know, or just have no idea, you know, and I've been on search committees where, you know, we've gotten applications from people. They're not even in academia. They don't have a PhD. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they're just like hard, applying for jobs and they sent one <laughs> right. in or whatever. But yeah, so I'm trying to think, and and yeah, my I my experience of being on search committees is, I cannot remember it ever coming up in a negative way, and it almost never comes up at all if somebody remembers a paper application from previously, like or I mean, like a submitted application, right? The application materials. It's just like people don't remember a year later most of the time. And if they do, it would be like, oh, there's that person. I wonder what they've been up to or whatever. And I think even that is exceedingly rare. The one thing, the one case I'm wondering about, I'm, I'm curious what you two think. Since this person does, I don't think this person thinks they have zero chance or else they wouldn't be asking the question. Um, but like, what what do you think of the the case where somebody, let's say, gets as far as an interview and doesn't get it? Are they dampening their chances for the next time around? I think it very possibly because of the reason why they didn't get it if they got the interview might have something to do with something stable about them. Obviously, many times it doesn't, but there are cases where, yeah, the thing that made you not get it after the interview is going to be true about you a year later, yeah. no matter what. And so in that case, the search committee might not give you a shot, but it's not clear that the counterfactual where you hadn't applied the first year mm -hmm. would have been any better because let's say they just, let's say they're a super biased committee, like many committees, and they just don't mm -hmm. like the way your voice tilts up at the end of your job talk sentences. They're not going to like that the next year either. So mm -hmm. um, whatever. I mean, that hopefully it never comes down to just that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the thing I'm wondering about, and I just don't know, I don't think, so I think I would, I think in the end, I'm going to land on telling this person they should definitely go for it. But like the thing, the thing I think about that's, I, you do see happen sometimes is 
when people have like a forced choice in order to, it's like the, the old like spreading of alternatives effect in cognitive dissonance that like when you give people a forced choice of two things that are pretty close together, they'll come up with reasons to justify why they went with whichever one they went with. And part of that can include sort of overemphasizing in their minds, the strikes against the second choice, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like you get, because we, I worry about this even because you, you often have this situation with a search committee where you, you have like your first choice, but you want to, you, you, you want to go for the second person if the first person declines or doesn't work out. And it is sometimes a little bit of like, you have to be a little careful in talking about making sure you're not like promoting the first person by derogating the second or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, in order to justify your choice. So I don't think in the end, that's a big enough reason for this person not to go for it. There's just no. so many advantages to taking opportunities when they're in front of you. But yeah. it is, I think, that, I guess I would say there's not a complete zero risk of downside. I would just say it's right. so small that the the upsides outweigh it. I would say that that the percentage of cases that something like that, ha- I think it's possible that applying one year could give you a slight disadvantage the next year compared to having not applied for the reasons that you suggest, Sanjay. But I think that happens in very few cases. And I also think that our ability to predict when that will happen is basically zero. So um, so in the position of somebody who's applying, I think you should basically always apply. Unless, as Samin notes, I think there are some some cases where you are really questioning your fit for a position and maybe like you're deciding whether or not to apply for one job or zero. And in which case, like maybe if you really think that you're not a great candidate, you don't want to go through all of the trouble of getting your materials together and asking your letter writers and some stuff like that. Um, yeah. I think we've talked about that on a previous episode about like whether or not to go on the market at all. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. yeah, the costs are pretty significant. Yeah. So that intersects with these issues too. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. You, you two are both right. That if there was the exact same job the next year, and you got pretty far the first year, then they might not consider you as seriously the second year because they're like, we already went through that process and made a decision. And it feels like also the unknown is way more exciting than someone you already considered carefully and rejected. Mm -hmm. But I mean, how often is there really the exact same job with the same people on the search committee and everything two years ago? Yeah, it it feels like, and and I, I know of cases where people have applied more than once and gotten it the second time around. So there's certainly instances where that does work where, you know, people are like, oh yeah, we really liked this person last time. Um, I mean, I've seen, I've seen the discussions kind of, and had conversations with people where I've seen it go both ways. So I don't think the spreading of alternatives is like a hundred percent of the time going to happen. It's just, it's like a very minor risk. So maybe, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it if I was in this person's shoes. I say go for it. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if there's a job this fall, yeah, I mean, right. go for it because like someone's going to get that job and, you know, might as well Could be you. Take a crack at it. And, mm-hmm. it, if you, and if this person feels like it's perfect for them, my yeah. guess is like a lot of times those perfect for me are things that don't matter to the committee. Like, oh, this is the location I want or whatever. But like, it's probably also, I'm guessing this, when this person, when our letter writer says it's perfect for them, it's like because of fit of research interests and also just their enthusiasm for the job is going to affect their performance. It's going to show in how they present themselves if they get an interview or in, in writing their cover letter or whatever. Um, so those are good, you know, that might actually be a factor in their favor that they feel like a really good fit for this. 
Yeah. This is a but rare. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, especially when times are tight, I would say apply to everything if you have the time and resources to do so. I was going to say this is a rare instance where we give a yes or no answer to a question. Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> apply. There's no, it depends. Just do it. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, do, do either of you have anything else to add to this one? That's it. No, but we should mention that we got a, we heard back from the author of our last letter. Maybe sometime we can talk about. Oh, I would that. like to talk about. Yeah, we got a we got a response from the author of our last letter, and also another um, another email about it. So I feel like we oh, could have true. a longer discussion about it. Yeah, maybe we should answer. revisit that in the future. Yeah, that might be yeah. that, that would be good to revisit. We just got one of them like a day ago, so we need yeah. to process. But uh, yeah, that would be good. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, thank you to our letter writer for, for writing and good luck on the job market. <laughs> and uh, listeners, if you would like to reach us, uh, you can email us letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. That's for a letter that you want us to read and discuss or for any other kind of feedback communication you want to give to us. You can find us on Twitter. We're at blackcoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. Instagram, Instagram.com slash blackcoatpod, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com on the web. And we're on a bunch of uh, platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I just actually, I was like going through our hosting service and I was like, oh, there's like two more services. So I just applied for us to be on Pandora now. I didn't know they did podcasts. I guess everyone's doing podcasts now. So anyway, we're trying to be everywhere. If you find if there's a place you like to get podcasts and you can't find us there, let us know and we'll try to get on it. And uh, yeah, thank you listeners for your feedback and support and all that. So our main topic today is we wanted to talk about sort of broadly about this idea of computational reproducibility, but it was prompted by a specific incident or I don't know what to call it, publication, I guess, um, series of publications. And so we wanted to talk specifically because it's a super interesting case. And, and I think that will give us a chance to kind of touch on more broadly questions about computational reproducibility. So if, for, if anyone's listening and they're not familiar with it, we talk a lot about replicability on this podcast or we have before, which is where you do an experiment again, collect new data to see if you get a consistent result. Computational reproducibility means same data, trying to just see if you can get the results that are in the published manuscript. And sometimes that also includes doing novel analyses to see how robust or, or what have you. But at its core, this idea of just like, if you had the same data, would you get the same numbers that are in the publication? Which I think to some people, especially maybe if you're earlier in the research process, sounds like, well, duh, doesn't that always yeah, happen? Right. And the answer is no, that it doesn't always happen. We don't know how, how often it does or doesn't happen, but it, it's happened enough times that it's gotten people's attention because a lot of analyses are complex. And, and you know, I think uh, a thing that, um, at least for me, really focused my attention for this a few years ago was uh, StatCheck, this uh, um, software that Michelle Nowton created um, to that do, just does internal consistency checks of manuscripts to see if like the numbers reported in them are impossible with against each other, and uh, a pretty large number of papers 
are not uh, like uh, sometimes they're just typos or inconsequential. Sometimes they're large, but that sort of brought attention to this idea that like, okay, manuscripts are reporting numbers that there's no way a computer would have spit out both of these numbers next to each other because they're computationally impossible. And so that was kind of like indirect evidence that maybe what we're seeing in published papers is not, you know, not the actual correct numbers. Um, but maybe we should dive into this specific case, um, which yeah, was, think, yeah. Samin, do I you want to kind of yeah. give us the background okay. on it? Yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about it in a concrete way at first, because the original effect is interesting just on its face. Mm -hmm. um, so if I understood right, and this is very far outside of my area of expertise, and I haven't read so just to, for full disclosure, I haven't read the original paper. I haven't read either the replication report or the verification report. I've just read the editorial by Macintosh and Chambers describing what happened. Um, so the original effect is um, about how if you're about, you, you condition a negative stimulus and you're going to extinguish it, but right before you extinguish it, you show it again and like elicit the fear response again that actually makes the extinction more effective. Right. That's the claim, I think, mm -hmm. which- Yeah, and it's this sort of larger idea that like memory, so remembering things is like an right. interactive it process. A window. Yeah. yeah, so the, the, the theoretical reason I think is that, yeah, reminding people of it, like re-eliciting uh, the fear response opens this window where then it's easier to overwrite the memory with this new the association that you train during the extinction phase. Mm -hmm. um, and but, and for context, uh, that original finding has been cited a ton, and it's been cited in a lot of clinical contexts as people right, saying right. this has implications for treating trauma. Right. That there's this evidence that if you get somebody to recall an emotionally intense event, that puts it in this. I think they use the term labile state. That puts it in this state where the memory can be. Uh, altered where the, the emotional connection can be changed. And so, so a lot of the citations to the original paper talked about potential clinical applications. Which I think makes this case especially interesting because, I mean, there are other cases of effects um, where the robustness of the effect comes into question. And I think many people fairly wonder, okay, how how big of a problem is it if people actually believe this? Um, like, for instance, when I talk to my friends about power posing, they're like, oh, big deal if people believe that power posing is real. And sometimes I argue with them, opportunity cost, et cetera, et cetera. But um, in this case, you know, your intuition that it might not be, it might be problematic to expose people to something that they're traumatized by um, is in competition with the results of this um, this reactivation extinction effect that's being um, being reexamined in these reports. So it's it feels like a um, potentially costly thing to be wrong about. Yeah, there's also a few features of this that are pretty typical, I think, and typical and problematic in the way that you know psychology and many other fields. Are, which is like this was published in Nature and that probably factored into why I got so much attention. Yeah. I, my understanding is that there aren't a ton of demonstrations of this in humans. Like the rest of the literature seems to be mostly animal. So then to jump from a mostly animal-based literature, which mm -hmm. at least in this editorial they characterize as a mixed literature to begin with, to a couple of studies in humans with relatively small sample sizes in the original Nature paper from what I understand, 
to like, let's implement this in treatment. And also the original paper from what I understand uses like participants who are probably college students or some, not, not people who I think are in a particular special population where this is likely to be applied. Um, and then coming into the lab and training a condition stimulus and then, then coming back over three days. So there's huge generalizability questions here. I mean, it's a, independent of just the low, low bars of reproducibility and replicability. I think there's all these other bigger questions that apply to many published findings, but like how much are we trusting this because of the journal prestige or because of the author's prestige? Right. What about the sample sizes? What about the fact that this is a convenient sample of people who are from a different population than what the finding is likely to be applied to? Like yeah. all of these issues that even if it passed the replicability and reproducibility checks wouldn't go away. Yeah. Okay. So we've got this original paper, Schiller et al., 2010 in Nature, really important yeah. if the findings are you know have real world applications and are robust okay so this is this is set up now yeah. what so. happens along the way is that a group of researchers the first author is anastasia chalkia um i hope i'm saying her name correctly decides that they want to do a registered replication at Cortex. So they've looked at this, they say this is really important, a lot of people are building on this, and so let's see if we can replicate the original, right? And so that's where the saga starts to get interesting. <laughs> right, so they, they uh, so there's in this editorial, they describe how they submit the stage one registered report. It gets- In November 2016. Yep, it's approved. <laughs> They start to do it and they discover that they're something like two thirds or three quarters three of quarters. the subjects, three quarters of the subjects are meeting the exclusion criteria, meaning they're running them through this procedure, which is a multi-day fMRI procedure and having to kick them out and not use their data. And so they, they go back to the journal and they, they're kind of like, what the fuck is going on here um uh, this is me uh that, that's not a quote uh <laughs> and so this whole thing turns out that there were they find this other article that's about the same study that has a different set of exclusion criteria and they're like okay this is weird and they go to the original authors and it turns out neither one describes the actual exclusion criteria that mm -hmm. there was a series of subjective judgments that were used to decide which subjects would be excluded so they come up with uh, an 11-point contingency plan that the reviewers are willing to go with that's actually rule-based and not subjective that captures like 80-some percent of the exclusions. Yeah, and they're like, true. okay, you can do your replication with that. Um, and, uh, and they have to collect like hundreds of subjects because they want to have enough power. And then they also decide, okay, well, let's with, with like, let's see because the exclusion rules weren't described the way they were actually carried out. Let's see what happens if we reanalyze the original data. So they get the original data from the original authors, they reanalyze it and they discover that the only way they can get the original numbers is by using the subjective exclusion criteria, not by any of the rule-based approaches. And, and when they do that, the key interaction is not even significant. Um, so for experiment one, the key interaction is not significant. For experiment two, they were never able to reproduce yeah. the statistical results. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the end result, so they, they publish this 
they, the Chalkia et al. published two papers. One is this new format called a verification report, which we should talk about, which is analyzing the computational reproducibility of a paper. The other is the, re the registered replication, which also does not get the effect. And, and the original article gets a, not a correction, not a retraction, but an addendum but, yeah, right. saying that the, uh, um, here's some more information about the exclusion criteria. So that's the, that's the, that's the setup. That's the, <laughs> the dramatic yeah, so event. There's a lot of like in the editorial, which doesn't necessarily reflect what the authors of the replication and verification reports would say themselves. This is like the perspective of the editors who handled it, but there's a lot of like talk about the Herculean effort and the persistence and tenacity and all the, the stuff that they had to do. I mean, if you think about it, yeah, they submitted the stage one uh, registered report in November, 2016, and it just came out, you know, in the last few months. Mm -hmm. um, so that even if, yeah, so just time alone was a lot of, of investment, but also yeah, the details of like all the steps they had to go through. And yeah, it's really impressive that they stuck with it through all that. Mm -hmm. And I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine there was also a lot of stress and negativity and anxiety about stepping on toes and making enemies and mm -hmm. this other stuff that often happens. But one thing I thought was really interesting that the editors point out is that this, you know, they give most of the credit to the, the authors of the re registered report and verification report, but they do say that the registered report format might have also helped because it gives kind of another stakeholder who's like saying, hey, this is important. Like the fact that a journal so they wrote the independent interest of the journal may have helped to convey that the requirement for clarity was not personally directed, but was essential for the registered reports process. So mm -hmm. I think it helps with the, the people who are doing the verifying and replicating to say like, oh, there's this other institution that has some authority that's saying we have to get to the bottom of this. Right. And also like maintains the incentive to continue with this work, right? Like um, if you were doing this in a traditional format and you were trying to replicate a finding and you got these exclusion rates that were really different and you were having to exclude three quarters of your sample, like you could easily imagine giving up thinking that there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to publish this at the end. So I think that, I mean, I, I think one of the hugest strengths of um, registered reports is that uh, it creates an incentive once you get your methodology approved. Um, to follow through with, with the study um, because you know that you'll be able to publish it. Yeah, and I, I don't know all the backstory, but the, the first author is, her Twitter profile currently says PhD student. So this has been, I'm assuming her entire grad school and nearly all of it has been this project, mm -hmm. which is just nuts. And, and, you know, and we talk a lot, we've talked in the past about how with replications how, and with work that turns out not to have been replicable that people who tried to build on that by like replicate and extend or, or conceptually replicate or other things there are a lot of people out there who spent a lot of time in grad school not publishing because they were trying to build on something that wasn't really there in the first place and and yeah. so this at least now this uh this author you know has two publications on her vita and i assume other stuff too but let's, I mean, we should talk Wait, about that. Can I say the, one more thing about that? Yeah. So I think that it's great that now there is some reward and incentive for people to do this work. She has two publications in her beta, et cetera. But mm -hmm. I also think if we take a step back, and this is kind of controversial because 
uh, it's focusing on the original authors. But if we take a step back and think about what the incentive structure in science, even with this, so this is an improvement yeah. for sure over yeah. how it used to be, but still compare the authors of the 2010 Nature paper. They have not retracted anything. They haven't even published an erratum. Their paper will still continue to get cited. They will still get all the benefits of having a Nature paper on their CV. Mm-hmm. Compared to what the authors of these two replication verification reports are going to get, um, I think that this is still not enough to correct the balance between the two. Yeah. Um, and Kevin Zolman gave a talk at, I think it was him, I might be misremembering who, which talk it was in the symposium, but at the Philosophy of Science Association meeting a couple of years ago, where he modeled how big the cost would have to be when you publish something that turns out to be wrong mm-hmm. for it to offset the benefits of having that publication out there in the first place. That's and so it was a very, very pessimistic model that like it's almost impossible to inflict enough costs and that sounds harsh but i mean it in a more economic sense mm-hmm. not like physically inflict um that that it outweighs the benefits of having that publication out there in the first place and i think this is great it's a huge step in the right direction but i still think we should also be paying attention to what the original authors are getting out of it and what's not happening in terms of correction to that. Right. Which is, I think a really important point. So I think sometimes I hear people um, argue that maybe, maybe this is a bit of a less common argument now, um, but argue that uh, we should allow findings to get out into the literature, even if we're very uncertain about them um, and even in prestigious outlets, because yeah, there'll be some kind of self-correction mechanism that gets rid of them if they turn out to not be true. Um, and that seems to obviously not be the case. And also then there's the problem of over-incentivizing the generation of positive results, even if they're possibly false positives, as opposed to like participating in the, the correction process. Um, so, I mean, and that idea was originally appealing to me because... I thought that um, it's cool to have just sort of like ideas out there as a source of like creativity and inspiration. Um, But I think the reality is that those ideas just get some sort of cemented into the literature as fact and rarely removed. Um, And the fact that there's a lot of incentive to contribute to that part of the process is even more problematic. So we're talking about the professional incentives, which I think are really important and, and sort of the idea that, yeah, like, you you know, how much credit do you get for publishing a false positive and for, for catching one, et cetera. But I think one of the things that really struck me about this when I first saw Chris Chambers and, and I think some other people uh, um, tweeting about it was the that clinical impact issue, right? So when, when this came out, I... I put the original paper into Google Scholar, and then I did a reverse citation search, and I, I said, show me articles that cite this one and have the phrase clinical practice, or cite this and have the phrase psychotherapy, or things like that. And there's a bunch of articles, and not just like they mention it once, but they're in the title, they're, you know, they're articles about treatment. And that's another, I think, really important consequence, because now, this wasn't an RCT, it's not like people were directly turning into treatment, but a lot of people were spending time and resources investigating how this can be turned into a treatment modality. And so, so that's another thing that like, if it takes 10 years to, to figure out that this original article should not be used 
to weigh the evidence of whether this theory is right or not, that that's a really long time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, but, you know, science has changed to some degree since 2010. And so, you know, registered replications weren't around then. And, and so, I mean, it's an, it's interesting to wonder, and let's, let's talk a little bit about these, some of these mechanisms and especially this idea of sort of computational reproducibility, right? Cause this is, this is not a phrase that I had really heard 10 years ago. I don't, I don't know if I would have known what it even meant mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Well, but it's a, I would have I, had, yeah. Sorry. If you want to, I would have had the same intuition that you described at the beginning, Sanjay, that, you know, as like an early person in the field or, or maybe not even an early person in the field, that the idea that you should be able to take this same data um, and the same set of analyses that the people who wrote a paper did and get the same results, um, the idea that, that anything other than that could be true seems bizarre. Um, and yeah, it's only been sort of like come to my attention recently that that's often not the case. And I think there are some papers examining the rates of computational reproducibility in the field and it's, it's pretty bad, right? Like I think Tom Hardwick has a paper about this. Um, and it's like, you know, you might being pessimistic, you might think, oh, maybe only like 85% of papers have it, but it's much lower than that. Um, yeah. I wish I knew off the top of my head, maybe one of you. Tom Hardwick's, yeah. So he looked, at, I think it was 37 papers and this was a pretty special population of papers because it was right, ones sure. that were published. No, they, well, the one, the project I'm thinking of is papers that were published in cognition after they changed their policy to mandate open data. Okay. So these were authors who knew that they would have to share their data. I so I think it's else. worse for those of us who aren't in that position. And even then about a third, he was able to reproduce without author's assistance, about another third, a little less than a third in each case, he was able to reproduce with author's assistance. And then more than a third, he was not able to reproduce even after getting assistance from the original authors for right. papers that knew that they would have to post their data and did post their data. Right. Yeah. And so, so this, this, this issue of like, okay, so one, one thing is computational reproducibility is a thing and it's up for grabs. It's not something that sort of like first year grad stats assumption, oh, the numbers are the numbers or probably first year undergrad stats or whatever, like that's okay. So that's not, this is like a question we need to be wondering about. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is like, yeah, like who actually checks, right? And so we're now moving into this era where we're saying, okay, you should post your data unless there's some like ethical or other reason not to. Um, More and more people are saying you should post your code. But like, so this brings up the next question of, okay, so openness is, is not an end. It's a means to an end. The end is actually, you know, doing the checking and, and finding out whether the work is what it's billed as, right? So that, I mean, Samin, you've said this a million times, like the point of openness is not it's good for its own sake. The point of, and it doesn't make something better in an ultimate, and it doesn't make the conclusions better. It makes them more checkable. You might check and find out that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question is like, okay, so who's doing that? And I mean, one barrier is like, you can say post your data, but you might go, and this, I have, I have my class, you know, when I, when I teach my open science class, I have them go find an article with open data and then go actually look at the data and assess, like, could you actually, like, can you, can you tell what's going on? Because sometimes people will dump an unlabeled CSV and that's their open data. Right. Or, 
Which I think else. raises an important point about the estimates of computational reproducibility because, so I don't know if this is more or less pessimistic, but commonly one of the reasons that uh, papers aren't computationally reproducible is not necessarily that there's um, any inconsistency between the data that people reported and the analyses that they ran and the results that they reported, but just that if you were to try to reproduce it, um, you wouldn't be able to, either because you wouldn't be able to find the data. The data would be very difficult to wade through. It's hard to find the variables that you need. You can't find the code to reproduce it. Um, you don't know which analysis from the code is the one that you're supposed to be using. So there's the question of whether um, whether the, like, I guess there's consistency between the data that um, have been collected and the analyses that have been reported um, and the results that are reported in the paper. And there's a separate question about whether you can actually, um, as like a person who wasn't on the original paper, go in and feasibly reproduce those results without, you know, contacting the original authors and getting a lot of help from them. So there's like two separate challenges, I think. Yeah, and and you know this the specific paper we've been talking about was published before open data was really a thing, and and the authors you know the editorial credits them for having posted made the data available um, mm -hmm. not just to the people asking about it but to anybody, so so they at least have the data <laughs> and had it yeah. in a usable form or got it into a usable form. But yeah, there's the issue that like a lot of articles they they say what the analyses were, but if it's only when you actually try to reproduce it that you realize, oh, they didn't say this, they didn't say that, they didn't, you know, um, you know, I see this sometimes where like there'll be a multi-level model and they don't say what's the random effect structure or these other things that like doesn't even occur to you as a reader necessarily because it's maybe ancillary to the substantive research question, but you have to actually know it to re reproduce the analysis and, and sometimes it matters. And then there's the, in this case, it's, it appears to be that the, what was in the paper, it did, the paper did talk about exclusion rules. It just was not correct. It was not what actually happened. Right. And this, this example also, I think, highlights the importance of replication and um, repro reproduction. Um, Reproducibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in tandem, because, I mean, it sounds like in this case with the original data, um, the, the authors who wrote the verification report were able to apply a different, a number of different exclusion criteria, meaning that they had all of the data in the file and were able to filter it in various different ways. Um, but there are cases I think where people post data files that don't have every data point that was ever collected in them. And you would need the step of trying to reproduce the study. So finding that you're like excluding way higher rates than the original authors did or um, finding that the data look really different than the original authors did um, in order to like identify that fact. So I think there are things that, I mean, obviously there are things that we can learn from replication that we can't learn from trying to reproduce the original results and vice versa. Yeah. This reminds me of a tweet that you wrote Sanjay a while ago about is a different, more extreme case of like a 7,000 participant replication of an effect that nobody should have believed in the first place. <laughs> but on, a, on a smaller scale, you could say the same thing here that like maybe the replication shouldn't have been necessary in the first place if, first of all, at the moment that we realized that their description of the exclusion was very, very far off from 
what actually happened that should have been a red flag arguably even going back before that the fact the sample sizes in the original studies yeah. and so on and especially by today's standards we could look back and say oh wait actually maybe we shouldn't put a lot of stock in this but anyway then there's the exclusion stuff then there's the lack of reproducibility like let's imagine that it happened first um would we have needed a replication but sadly i think we do and i think even mm -hmm. with the failed replication in a registered report it still won't be enough for people to stop thinking not so first there's like people who will still think that this original effect is very reliable and we should build on it which is sad to me because i think that's clearly not the case i'm not mm -hmm. saying we know it's not true but we definitely don't have good reason to think it is right. and then there's people who will think oh sure okay i'm going to discount this 2010 nature paper but i'll look at all these other great promising avenues for exactly. treatment or any other findings that have all the same characteristics on the surface like i'm thinking of the covid papers about how social and psych psychological and behavioral research has so much to contribute but like aren't most of those papers very very similar to this 2010 nature paper like we don't know if we scratch beneath the surface that they would have the same problems but why i think they won't and that's what i find frustrating is that even with all of these layers like the uh -huh. fact that the original misreported the procedure the fact that it, you couldn't verify reproducibility the fact that you couldn't replicate right like that's a red flag, not just about this paper, but about any other paper that has the same superficial characteristics, which is most of them, we should now have a higher degree of skepticism about them, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's gonna happen. Yeah, I remember you making this point, Samin, about the field as a whole rather than an, an individual effect. So I think, um, I think you pointed out that it was really important that um, the Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson paper came out and then we also had these large scale um, replication projects um, coming out showing that the replication rates were low um, because it was like people needed to see both that the, um, the literature wasn't replicating well and be shown why that was the case. So shown the mechanism for why, um, why these results are not robust. And I think that's probably I mean, yeah, it's sort of depressing because it's so much work. It's a Herculean effort, as we've seen, um, to do this for even just one study to show the, the yeah. replication and also the, um, the sort of like pointing out the flaws, if there are flaws in the original yeah. so, studies. So this, I mean, this is where this issue of computational reproducibility could be useful in the sense that and and this idea of a verification report is a uh, is pretty recent. In fact, I think this is the first verification yeah. report that Cortex has published. But so the I mean the idea being that if you it's kind of it should be low hanging fruit, right? That it it should be the case that if you get the data and you get the code or a complete description of the analyses, you can check. And if it passes, it doesn't mean it's valid. But if it doesn't pass it means that you shouldn't be drawing, you know, if it doesn't pass in a consequential way, it means that you shouldn't be drawing the same conclusions from the study. And that is, that should be easier and cheaper in mm -hmm. probably most instances, uh, it's hard to think of any exceptions, than, than running a replication would be, right? And, yeah. and so we just haven't had, we still barely have the infrastructure to even do that. Um, so, you know, people, for that to happen, people need to be sharing data they need to be sharing code or 
code equivalent complete description. But then the other thing is there, there has to be, or the next thing is that there has to be a place to put those reports to say, hey, I've checked this paper and yes, it checks out or no, it doesn't check out. Um, and that's, the, that's where verification reports are. And of course, the step after that is that those then have to be taken seriously and they have right. to actually lead people to change their conclusions. Right. But to date, we haven't like had a place to say, like if you, if you go and you check the, the data or you check the analyses in a paper and you find that they're off in a consequential way, it's this like real Byzantine you know, Kafka-esque process of like negotiating with the editor and the original authors to maybe get an erratum. And some editors are good about that and some will completely blow you off. And some will be good up to a point, but then deferential to the authors and the authors will blow you off and things like that. And so it's not, this isn't going to solve it because we need the incentives to follow, but it's like, we can't even know. It's like, it's so fucking basic. If you say like, there is this was the mean difference between conditions and this was the p-value if that's not computationally correct then that you know that 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 should that should stop things but i i you know yeah yeah. i think that's what i was getting at i mean the positive spin on it is that this set of papers will start to form a link between the idea that computational reproducibility is an even lower bar than replicability, which is already a very, very low bar. Like something could be replicable and not yeah. mean at all what the authors say it means, but Definitely. whatever. And so if we can have a few more high profile examples linking those two, saying like this was both not reproducible and also not replicable. So maybe reproducibility should already be a big enough warning sign that we shouldn't put much stock in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, it would be interesting empirically if there's a correlation between reproducibility and replicability. I would be shocked if there isn't. Um, maybe somebody should go back and try to reproduce the analyses from all the large-scale replication projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they, I mean, a lot of them, people do secondary analyses because they want to, you know, yeah. with like the many labs and that kind of thing. But yeah, no, mostly it's... Mostly on the replication data, not so much on the original data from what I understand. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's... One thing that, that'll be interesting to see with computational reproducibility is whether it starts leading to retractions. And it didn't in this case. It didn't even lead to a correction, just an addendum. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, people, there was this d- discussion about seven or eight years ago about like, if something doesn't replicate, should it be retracted? And I think the the gist was no, because mm-hmm. there are plenty of valid reasons and it could be the replication is wrong and not the original. And, and I think that's, that's like a complex argument. Right. Um, but we, we often reserve retraction for things that are factually indisputably wrong. Right. Like that's that, you know, if somebody made up their data, they said I collected it, but they really didn't will retract it. Right. And so, and computational reproducibility is a case where, it's it's the basic facts. Like if the authors say this yeah. is the data, and someone says I did the math you said you did, and I got different numbers, and everybody else can look at the math and say, yep, I did the math too, and it's different numbers, that should at least lead to a correction, depending on the magnitude of it. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, if it's the the pivotal finding that the conclusions rest on, it should lead to a retraction. And so it it will be interesting to see whether. In some ways, that's the possibility for this to have more of an impact than replications because people can come up with hidden moderators and other things. But with 
computational reproducibility it's like no i can't get the fucking numbers and it's yeah. math you know yeah. it's um it's it's rule based it's deterministic when the, from the data to the numbers in the paper if you have the complete description of the analysis it's close to a deterministic process outside mm -hmm. of you know whatever you know starting values or whatever you know what i mean but uh i have no idea what what the future of this is because we're brand new to these kinds of reports yeah i think a challenge with all of this stuff and it's the same with replication and also with things like p-curve is to convey that like if it fails this test that's really 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 bad and if it passes this test that's just like okay you're still in the game but you may very well lose the game like, like you yeah you didn't even score a point like yeah you're just allowed you just like the show field. that you're not really 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 bad yeah yeah like people yeah. like celebrate the p-curve shows evidential value i'm like okay cool so it's not a hundred percent complete noise good job you know right, like right, right yeah i mean this is this is where you know the i mean i feel like eight years ago when people when people were first thought, starting to talk about replicability and some of the pushback was like why don't you care about validity why don't you care about yeah. theory and it's like no we do it's that if it's not even replicable then why you know, out, outside of like a historical study or a qualitative study or something like that but if, it, if it's the sort of study that's supposed to be replicable and it's not then that stuff doesn't matter if it does replicate then it could still be wrong on all those counts, like you're saying. Like, you know, it could not mean what you say it means, but at least it's like the the underlying like empirical statement. The empirical and, claim is true. It's just the interpretation is wrong. And computational reproducibility is lowering the bar even yeah. more. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you could have done the wrong analysis. You could have yeah. p hacked it to death. That's right. okay. But can right. we at least get the same yeah, result? Yeah, like it's such a low bar, and I, it's so scary that we. And, I and interpreted that's like, a correlation between shoe size and number of siblings as evidence of treatment efficacy after of, p hacking. You know, after you know. <laughs> Yeah, after right. p hacking, and it's like I can't get the correlation again <laughs> with all the p hacking you did. I, I'll, I'll do all yeah. the p hacking, I still can't get the correlation, <laughs> which I think is one reason why, um, like an early career researcher or a, or a person outside of the field would be like, Whoa, you're telling me that I can't read a paper and trust that if I like redid exactly what they did in their analyses with exactly their data, that I would get these numbers. Like, there's a reason why. Um, an inexperienced person or a person outside of the field would be extremely shocked that they can't have that level of trust in a paper. And it's kind of embarrassing. We should point out that to their credit that the verification reports at Cortex, um, the third R in the editorial is robustness. And I think they do expect the computational reproducibility papers to go beyond just replicating the mm -hmm. potentially p-hacked analysis that the authors did and trying doing robustness checks on alternative plausible ways to test it so that's that's a cool feature too that it will be a slightly higher bar than just can i get the same numbers if i do the, all the arm you know the twisted convoluted forking past things that you did right right that's a good point yeah I, I i will be really interested to see how this format goes at cortex and whether other journals take it up because the mm -hmm. i mean that's the idea you know is just like it you know if we're going to say like open data and open code are important because people can check your work, there should be a way to say, yeah, and, and think about it on the positive side too. Like there should be mm -hmm. a little, a, a way to like, you're looking at a paper to see like, oh yeah, somebody independently verified that the numbers check out. Like, especially mm -hmm. once you have these questions in your head, like, oh, holy shit, like it doesn't always mm -hmm. check out. It should be a way to say like, 
you know, Sanjay published a paper and Joe Schmo ran the numbers and Sanjay didn't fuck up on this. Exactly. In this way, badge, not a like we know it's right badge, which is right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And so it's cool that there is now a way that, yeah, you can. I mean, I think the purpose of it, we talk so much about incentives. This is kind of funny thinking about our last episode and the whole like, you know, viewing scientists as like homo economicus or whatever. But it's also like the actual like information is valuable too. Like somebody check this and it works. And it mm-hmm. it's really like when things do check out, that's really useful information. That should be out there. There should be a way to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we need to get better at saying it in a way that doesn't convey it's valid, but just yeah. like, didn't, <laughs> yeah. didn't mess up this specific thing. Yeah. Yeah. It should well, be like, it? you know, like saying that you got your study approved by the IRB. Right. Yeah. Is, is it APSA? It's, I know there's some political science journals where they actually have somebody on staff who computationally reproduces They outsource the, it, the or at least the American numbers. Journal of Political Science outsources it okay. to some company in North Carolina. Okay, but that that's part of their publication process. So if you read yeah. something in that journal, you know that somebody reran the numbers that the authors are are reporting. You know that's that's like that in in you know in a in a decent world that would be good for the journal too, right? That should enhance the journal's credibility. A journal that has that should be cited more and trusted more than a journal that doesn't. Um, also, seems like a good yeah. way for journals that charge a shit ton of money to access their papers, to spend that money. Like, what are they spending their money on? Yeah, Why aren't right. they doing that? Like, yeah. all that money is coming in anyway. Yeah. Excellent point. It's a whole nother topic. <laughs> Shall we wrap up for today? Sure. That sounds good. Cool. Well, thank you listeners for listening to The Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.